There we are. Okay, so I'm going to start us up. Hey, look, files on demand. Go away. I didn't ask for you. All right. Uh, all right. Hey, um, hello, everybody. Welcome to Tech Chat Tuesday for Tuesday, April 13th. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. Welcome back, Ken. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for holding down the fort with Becca last week. It was really good. Was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, you guys are, thank you, Becca. You guys are, yeah, thanks, Becca. And you guys are you're kicking butt on that. So thank you so much. Uh, before we start, uh, you know, Chariot Consulting Firm, uh, we've been uh, around for, what, 14, 15 years now? I don't know the number anymore in my head. But we run a show every year called Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise, in case you don't know about it. Uh, it's coming up May 4th to 6th, 2021. It's uh, virtual again this year. Uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully next year we'll be back in uh, group. But we've got an amazing lineup. We just finished our schedule. So if you wanted to know exactly when which speakers are speaking, uh, you can head over to sessions and you can take a look and it's all figured out now. So for example, we have the pioneer of object oriented programming and graphical user interfaces, Alan Kay, uh, as an amazing keynote, he's going to be starting off the show. Uh, and then we're going to have three sessions at a time. So you'll see like, for example, at 12, 15 PM, we have Eastern time. We have, uh, auto merge, uh, uh, foundation for collaboration software by Martin Kleppman. Uh, we have Crossing the River by Feeling the Stones uh, uh, by Simon Wardley. We have Secure by Design, some design information. And then we have another set and another set. Uh, and this year, like our last year, um, we are going to have chariot consultants uh, who work on ETE give introductions as well. So you get to meet some of us and see our faces and realize why we are interested in these speakers too. So it should be you know, a way you can get to see us and, and, and meet us. We're also going to be doing um, a live Slack session where people can kind of chime in and talk to each other like we did last year. That went really well, I thought, Sue John. Um, you know, anything we can do for interactivity, I think that that's really been a, a kind of a highlight of ETE 2020, right? Absolutely. So we're going to do that. Uh, and then uh, Sue John and I are going to do kind of a pregame show. Uh, we're going to have, because it starts off in the morning around what time 11. So we're going to have an hour maybe uh, beforehand every day where we're going to kind of do some programming, have some people stop in, uh, you know, talk through some, maybe some interest of some of our speakers, as well as just kind of kick around some topics that we're interested in for the day. So check it out. That's 2021.phillyemergingtech.com or phillyete.com. Either one works. And it's 89 bucks. It's cheap. And there's a buy three, get one free deal going on right now. So you can sign up for that and get one, one seat for free <clears throat> if you sign up for three. I'm excited to hear that the schedule is now finalized. That's really cool. Yep. I know. Every year when that happens, it's a sigh of relief for the team because they finally have everything figured out, the puzzle pieces in the right place. I think one year I did a time-lapse video of that, and it was kind of fun to watch. I'll have to try to find that for next time. So, but lots of really good stuff, you know, yeah. everything from Java to TypeScript to, you know, um, you know, micro front ends and all sorts of cool stuff. So great stuff here. Uh, and also, sorry, who's no, doing go ahead. micro front ends? Let's see here. Uh, Michael Gears, micro oh, wow. front ends in action. Nice. All right. Yeah, really good stuff here. Um, oh, and we should mention the other keynotes. So the keynotes uh, on the third day is Kent Beck. Um, extreme programming uh, interview by our, uh, our longtime uh, speaker and keynoter and now committee member Jessica Kerr. Uh, yeah, that's going to be fantastic. And then we also have for our second day, we have Amber Case. Um, and so she uh, is going to be talking about designing comm technology. 
Uh, it'll be really interesting to listen to too. So that's our three keynotes, Alan Kay, Amber Case, and um, Kent Beck and Jessica Kerr. Great keynotes. The other thing I wanted to bring up is if you hit our YouTube page, which is uh, youtube.com slash chariot solutions, you can get access to all of our prior ETEs. So for example, if you go to playlists here, uh, you'll see we've got uh, all the women speakers who have spoken at all of our events. Uh, and that includes ETE and other events as well. And we have a super playlist of all the ETE content we have available all the way back years. So if you want to get a feel for the type of speakers we have before you buy your $89 ticket, you can do that. Or if you just want to see older talks that have really good tech that you might have run into before, as well as we have these, um, you know, Tech Chat Tuesday talks all archived here, the 15 minutes with sessions that we do, uh, and a whole bunch of other things like our single page app day and RxJS tutorials and you name it, it's in here. So I guess with that, let's go to the news, shall we? Uh, let's start off with open search. So tell me what this is happening here we, we elastic search was forked yeah so elastic search um the open source fork of it um called open search so recently elastic search announced a new licensing model um i think several weeks ago or sometime in march called the elastic license and that license um i have not thoroughly reviewed it i, I believe in some cases it's more permissive than the previous licensing model but in other cases um namely usage in, in cloud-based services like Amazon, it's restrictive where it's not allowing, um, actually, if you go to the, uh, yeah, I can hear it is. It says under the limitations, you may not provide the software to third parties as a hosted or managed service where the service provides users with access to any substantial set of features, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, unless I'm mistaken, to me, that clearly reads as, okay, you can no longer use Elasticsearch as a managed service, which AWS provides managed Elasticsearch with this license model. So it's been forked by Amazon um, called OpenSearch and um, with a license model that's permissive for being able to present and use as a service on Amazon. Now, it'll be interesting to see what does that mean in terms of keeping up to date and merging changes or patches or fixes in and how much of it now becomes a bespoke like, okay, Amazon making its own changes and optimizations improvements, which Amazon has done those kind of things in the past with Elastic and with Mongo, like they have document DB, which is another thing that basically they took and then open sourced a Mongo DB clone um, or fork. I don't know enough about that, but so Amazon has a, has done this before and they've built services around that. So um, I think right now is too early for me to tell, you know, which, way which path is this going to take and is it going to be good for the community and good for elastic search users and is it going to drive innovation um or is it going to be in a, in a year or two from now you're going to have to ask well which which one are you using are you using open search or using elastic search and are they going to diverge enough where it's going to be challenging so um and I you was know, curious to hear what you think about that yeah so and and just to be clear you know elastic search wasn't that a fork of something else as well? So Elasticsearch is basically a distributed version of Lucene. Mm -hmm. So both Solar and Elasticsearch use Lucene as the as the inverted index, like index engine um, under the hood for indexing and storing um, documents. But then Elasticsearch is distributed and, and kind of cloud native now. Um, yeah. Sol Solar wasn't meant to be uh, distributed initially. I think there are slower clusters, but it's not inherently distributed cluster aware like Elasticsearch is. So yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because big shout out to Lucene, the thing that has been around for a long time and that they both heavily rely on. 
it's interesting because I know when they forked Lucene, there was the controversy of should we be forking Lucene to do this? Um, and now there's an open search, which is kind of like another fork or whatever you want to call it of Elasticsearch. So um, do they have an actual product that's going to be running open search or is that basically the, 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 is that the core of Elasticsearch going forward or is it going to be yet another way you could use it on their platform? Um, I think they're, they're going to go whole hog on open search. Um, mm -hmm. okay. It's going to remain open source and community driven according to the article. And basically it just sounds like they're making a long-term investment in open search um, and folks being able to use that. So okay. open search is derived from Elasticsearch 7.10.2 okay. um, and open search dashboards, which is derived from Kibana 7.10.2 as well. So um, I think they're serious about it. Uh, and, right. And I don't know. I, I, it'll be interesting. To, I, again, I think right now it's not does, it's not going to make much of a difference. But as things diverge, if they do, it'll maybe make a difference months or a year from now. Um, so they're going to rename the existing Elasticsearch service, which is on Amazon, to Open Search Service. So it's a it's not okay. just, it's also a rebranding. Mm -hmm. It's also probably, and I'll bring this up uh, too. It's probably also a way to try to get. Um, more contributions in because I know they've de now defined uh, something called a developer certificate of origin. Um, so there's a blogger out here, Drew Duvall, uh, and he, he has a, a little note out here about, uh, um, you know, Elastic themselves went to a proprietary license, which was driving this, I guess. Um, and then that's when Amazon, I guess, forked it. Um, they, you know, they, they had a, uh, a contributor license agreement, right? Uh, so, so now the developer certificate of origin is baked into open search and this is something based on kind of Git, and now you will have a sign off, right? So, uh, you can do minus F when you commit with your sign off. Um, it basically means you agree to the DCO. Uh, and that means that the, by making a contribution to this project, I certify as a developer that the contribution was created in whole or part by me. And I have the right to submit it under the open source license indicated in the file, I guess at that time. Or it's based on prior work, the best of knowledge covered by appropriate open source license, et cetera, same intent. Um, or someone else certified it. And I understand agree this project and contribution are public. This is important. Are public and a record of the contribution, including all personal information I submit with it, including my sign-off, is maintained indefinitely and may be re redistributed consistent with the project or open source licenses involved. So it covers all the licensing terms. Interesting. Yeah, and it basically says that you are a contributor, period. Even if they take this thing and do something with it, they must make you know, sure they acknowledge your contribution. Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, it sounds, and it sounds like there's like a e-signature component to it. So like you're actually, it's a signed commit. So yeah. you're basically actually storing that it was you that did it and you approved it. And I guess that also helps from like, if you were to like plagiarize or take something from closed source or something yeah. that wasn't licensed properly, but now you're committing it, they can figure that out. I mean, they'll be able to trace it back to you. Right. It's kind of double-edged sword, but it's, it's positive for them and positive for you if you're doing a contribution so that it doesn't end up being something commercial that you, you know, contributed to open source wise uh, and you don't get any, you know, uh, credit or, you know, your, your contribution is no longer from you in the future or whatever you want to call it, that your license has changed out from under you. So this is interesting. I wanted to bring that up because kind of, you know, comes in with this. Be interesting to see if there are other companies that are using developer certificate of origin when they're basing things on open source. So that'll be a, a, an interesting thing to track. A bunch of big companies are are 
siding with Amazon. It's a, like it was very Capital One, Red Hat, SAP mm-hmm. are all for this open source fork and Amazon rebranding it and using that. That's great. That's great. And we should mention we are a partner of Amazon. We are an AWS uh, service provider. We do consulting for them just to be open. Okay. Um, now I saw this one. I didn't read it until you put it up here. But uh, so um, I saw this in our news feed. Yeah. Uh, there's an HTTP search method. Uh, well, this is a so new one. It's called search. It's an IETF draft standard right now, which means yep. that it could change many times or not go in, turn in, end up being anything. But yeah. Um, basically, the idea is that uh, right now you either have to use a get or a post to do a search, right? So get is item potent and it's not meant to impact or change, have side effects, a resource on right. a server. But at the same time with get, everything is going through a URL, um, which is not really, uh, I guess, uh, secure or nice when you want to provide a lot of data and having to put it all into a URL encoded plain text thing. And post yeah. is really meant for things that are having side effects where you're actually you know, updating an entity or resource. So using post to do a search because you have a large search um, criteria object or set of objects and you have to use post to be able to put a body as part of your request and send it out. Um, that's what people do right now, but that's not really what post was meant for. So this draft standard is discussing this search. Um, they actually call it something else. Uh, the, the official name, I forget it somewhere in the article, uh, but it allows you to send a request body in a stateless oh. way that doesn't have a side effect. So you're not going to use post. So search is specifically a method to not to ensure or the contract is you cannot change a resource. You cannot change an entity. It can't have a side effect. So in that sense, it's like a get you're asking for information or resource back, but it's there it not a single resource or set of resource. It's search results. So um, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. And it only caught my attention because I, you don't hear new HTTP methods being discussed that often. I was like, oh, wait, wow, what is this? But um you know, I haven't thought it through that much. Like, is this a good thing or not? I I think um, whether you end up calling it search or not, I don't know if I'm sold on like, hey, let's call it search. There may be a higher level generic name that applies to a whole class of operations that fit this, but um, it definitely shouldn't be a post. Yeah. No, I like this concept actually, because, you know, it's interesting. You could have some sort of, you know, logical search language you're posting. You know, they're saying here that there's a SQL search, which you know, scares the pants off me. <laughs> I'm like, no, SQL in the browser. Hey, never. hey, don't do this. It's not a good idea. No, and it says right below it, you shouldn't do that. But, yeah. but you know, maybe there's some sort of like, you know, GraphQL thing, right? And you could right. put a GraphQL document in there and say, here's my query for GraphQL language. And then that front end to back end communication knows it's a search result set coming back. Yeah. It'll definitely be interesting to watch as this evolves. Um, and it also, it looks like you can have it... Um, send headers when you're going to do something for the page that's going to accept a search in a, in a search verb that I can take GraphQL or application SQL run, but you know, like I'll take this type of payload, but I won't take another type of payload. So they're just, they're being, you know, going through the whole Roy fielding, you know, uh, headers and such to, to make it play nice. I think so they, right now the draft is officially called safe method with body. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I think it's interesting to know, cause the first thing I thought, yeah. Oh, that means now I can, you know, I, this could also be cacheable, like, excuse me, like get, 
Yep. It actually, so the article says right now the spec does not define the result of this query as cacheable. It's not completely clear why, but I suspect this is because caches today never take the body into account and starting to do so would be a major change that needs some careful thought and consultation or I think they make consideration, but um, yeah. So, so it's not yet uh, being described as cacheable. Right, right. That makes sense so far. Um, yeah, so this is definitely something to keep an eye out for because I'm sure it'll end up in you know, browser rollout. So I guess you could do it without, you know, changing the browser. You could just use, you know, your your typical REST calls and use a different verb. But, and then servers are going to start supporting it once this gets kind of to the point where it's supportable. Um, so you, you should keep your eye on this going forward. It's probably going to change the way we handle searching in the future uh, or at least enhance it potentially. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Rust for Windows. So what's the story been for Rust for Windows? Do I don't know? know what the story has been for Rust. For Windows, yeah. Um, so I, I can't really talk about its evolution or how I did it to you earlier and how easier it is now. But right. um, the current uh, Rust for Windows, I think, believe is in preview form. Okay, and it lets you. So what I found interesting, it lets you use any of the existing Windows APIs, Ooh. old APIs, so past, present, or future. So I guess they're going to now implicitly saying they're going to be compatible with even Rust going forward. Um, through a Windows crate, which is like their Rust packaging mechanism. So you can basically use a Windows crate to get access to Windows APIs, um, which gives you, you know, their graphics engines, um, their threading, multi-threading, their windowing systems, okay. their APIs. Um, so you use Rust, you use Cargo to get those crates. And um, let's see here. It is, it is open source. Um, it's being developed on GitHub. So that's a, like, it's just amazing how much open source stuff Microsoft is doing, how active they yeah. are in the community now. And obviously they own GitHub, but that they're doing all this openly on GitHub. And, you know, Rust is, I'm hearing more, everyone I, I bump into now, they're looking into Rust and trying to find ways to use it within their company. So it's gaining a lot of traction in, in niches right now, but that those niches are growing fast. So there's a sample actually <laughs> um, that the article cites uh, where they wrote Rust uh, in Minesweeper. I mean, they, sorry, say that. Wrote Minesweeper in Rust. <laughs> hey, close enough. It's if the you, same if thing. you can program in Minesweeper, oh my God, I'm switching jobs. For, <laughs> I'm going to use Minesweeper to, to program everything now. I kind of feel like my my coding looks like Minesweeper after a while. And when it starts looking like that and all the blocks start like breaking on me, I have to go get some sort of coffee. Um, this is very cool. Hey, also, in addition to this, while we're talking about that, um, uh, let's see. No, that's not the right one. Where'd it go? Do, do, do. No, I it's on an article, but we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, here we go. So a couple things. Uh, Rust support moves in Android underpinning. Speaking of Rust, so Google has announced that Rust can be used inside of Android for the guts of Android, which is going to be interesting because I know that every time I've had an Android phone and the apps have crashed on me, I've, I got sad. Um, and this is a long time ago. I'm sure it's a lot better now, but you know, Rust can only help the stability of an app that was originally written in C, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And they've already been using Rust in some of the lower level Android modules. Mm -hmm. so is this more, is this about the um, operating the system level modules and the Google Android teams using it? Or is it also like app developers can now start building modules in Rust or Android? It's, it's basically saying um, the open source version of Android will have support for parts of the operating system to be built in Rust. So this is like the underpinnings of the OS. Like we we, we uh, had a discussion, I forget where. A couple um, of ago, we, we brought this up. 
Yeah. And they were saying that like, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're putting it in the lower levels of operating system environments. Um, yeah, that's right. We were talking about that last. Um, so this is now Android itself. It's OS. Um, we'll start to have pieces of it built in Rust and kind of swapped out with the C and C++ code, which could be really good for memory safety and that kind of bug. And, you know, you know, Google found half of its memory bugs were in code from under a year old. Oh, wow. How about that? And hence it made sense to target Rust at new code rather than rewriting the OS in Rust. Wow. Okay. So that's interesting, right? Like you said, I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned uh, Android crashes. So it'll be interesting to see what it does, not just for memory safety and stability and how many of those crashes are due to things like memory safety or not. Yeah, a lot of them usually are, right? Something yeah. like that. You're walking off the edge of a pointer or God knows what. Okay. And then, oh, there's one more here. Uh, let me see if I can find it. I'm sorry. It's one of those days today. See, everyone gets to see our, our news early. Um, all right. Well, we'll move on. I'll find that other link towards the end. Let's let's go on and talk about students' physics homework so <laughs> picked up by Amazon Quantum researchers. What I what I find interesting here is that well, reading code, reviewing code, whatever is all can is always a good activity. It can have benefits even for code or or mathematical or source code, software code that's been around for a long time and just taken for granted. Um, doesn't mean that there's not room for improvement or optimization or different ways of looking at the problem. So just to, because I'm not an authority on any of this, so I'm not gonna even pretend like I am, but basically the idea quantum computers, qubits, which is like the unit of, of uh, computation or, or data, data numeric uh, storage computation for quantum computers is mm -hmm. quantum computers are very unstable and they're very prone to interference and noise in the environment. So getting them to be stable is really challenging. And what that means is that it's very easy for to introduce errors in the computations and the in the bit these qubits. So there's error correcting codes to help uh, uh, basically uh, combat the errors being introduced through noise and interference. And apparently like this one error correcting code has been studied for two decades. Um, and this sophomore student um, from Sydney University, I believe, mm -hmm. um, his name is, I wanna make sure I mention his name, uh, Pablo Bonilla Ataides. He um, looked at this code, I guess, and figured out a way to increase the error, error correcting capacity, double the error correcting capacity. Um, so wow. okay. massive, massive improvement and hopefully will help quantum computing even be more stable. And now like other companies, and in this case, the AWS Center for Quantum Computing is really interested in his research and what his findings. Um, and a lot of other, I guess, universities and companies are too. So like people in the community are looking at this. It seems to be like a, a, an actual, not just a fluke, but like he found, he, he found something very elegant that increases the chances of uh, finding and correcting errors in, in quantum computers. So interesting that the sophomore student as part of a research or homework assignment, I think think that's a little bit clickbaity to say it's homework. I think it was part of some research project or something that he was able to find this. So I don't know. Yeah, okay, that's I think really cool though. Just because something's been around for two decades that um, is sacrosanct and it's just truth. He found an improvement. Very cool, very cool. And he's 21 years old. Yeah. So it's great to see innovation from people that are in school still that are just you know thinking of different aspects of solving a problem. Yeah. And then it becomes something people use. It's always yeah. the way. Very cool. I have a just a, a quick side note thing. And some of these links may be broken. I hit one and it failed. But um, 
and whenever you have to diagram something for, for something, whenever I reach for a diagramming tool where you click and drag, it, it usually fails me at some point uh, where either I have the wrong operating system. Like I loved Omni uh, Graffle, but then when I was running Windows for two years, I'm like, <laughs> I can't do an Omni Graffle diagram. So I got to go find a Mac and fire up the Mac to edit that or what have you, or can't run a Visio diagram. So I always like doing text-based diagramming. And I, I know we talked about dot before and things like that, yeah. but apparently there are a lot of these out here. Um, like uh, SVG Bob, I think that might be the one that broke. No, that isn't. Um, it's uh, if you can type the characters, it draws them. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's like that would take me way longer to do. Like you know that 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 uh, grid there, that would make my head hurt. But whatever. I guess the idea um, is that you can use like a normal text editor in your yeah. So you type all your content in a text editor, and then I guess you cut and paste these in and tweak them, and then it produces that. Wow. I can tell you, dot is much better. You know, SVG dot. Um, uh, is much better to these uh, directed graphs than drawing something like that in that text. That is insane, isn't it nuts? I can it go? Can it? Is it bidirectional? Can it go from a diagram to the ASCII? I I seriously okay. doubt that. Um, who knows? I don't think so. But yeah. um, so that's one. Um, you know, you'll you'll find ones like uh, Edoter. Ah, dot. I was playing with this earlier. So like, and you can change it to blue. Spell the word blue. So the there we go. That's pretty cool. What other yeah. engines on there? So at the top, there's a drop down for engine. Is right now it says it's selected. Okay, dot. Oh, I guess there's different. Oh, Ooh. this is fun. Now the reason I I even looked at this is I do uh, in my training stuff. I'll embed SVG dot diagrams and things like that. Um, sometimes for things like you know showing like a map or reduce or what yeah. have you in some of the JavaScript and TypeScript training I've had. So I've been using that in my ASCII doctor because ASCII doctor supports a bunch of these different types of tools, but it'd be great to have an IDE browser even to do something more like this. And so there's a, that's really ugly hamming distance. I'm sure there's, there we go. So nice. there's some hamming distance data and that, that you could, you could programmatically generate this pretty yeah, easily. Really nice, actually that's a, yeah. We in in a project a, a number of years ago, there was a lot of the stuff I did. There were a lot of finite state machines in a lot of the logic. Oh yeah. So I would use dot to to document that stuff and be able to show it to other developers. Speaking of, I'm glad you mentioned it. Oh, let's see if we can actually get it to draw. There, there you go. That's a state machine. Yeah. Right. So anyway, so it, it could be interesting. Maybe something if you're learning a, a new diagramming tool, if you're learning dot and you want to experiment with it. You can hit one of these pages where there's an editor for it and try it out. Um, you know, I've seen plant text before. Where is that? Oh, that's the one that was broken. That's probably why I remember it. Dot um, UML. Yeah, that's really cool. I wonder if you could take something like this and something like something like a. Ooh. Imagine taking like a Jenkins file or a Circle CI file or like CloudFormation or Terraform templates and do some. You know, you have some pre-processing of that into this, so you get like a diagram showing what it, what's being done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, so that's a really useful little website uh, to kind of go back and find these different, uh, you know, tools. Uh, definitely try to pick a tool that is heavily used, right? So for example, the dot graph is kind of stuff is very heavily used out there. Um, don't pick something that's ra random that one developer has, because otherwise three years from now, you won't be able to generate your diagram anymore. Apparently this is a fun thing to reinvent over and over again. Nice. Yeah. People are doing a lot. So railroad die. I've seen this one before. Um, railroad diagram generator. What is a railroad diagram? Oh, it's like when you see syntax uh, chains, like, uh, let's see, got grammar. 
I, I won't be able to make this work in time. Um, it's like when they, they have like the, when they, they diagram sentences or, or, or language things where it's like, you know, you've got this keyword, this keyword, this one's optional with the line around them. They look like railroad ties kind of. Well, that's what they um, call it. Like a context-free grammar. Yeah. It's like a railroad. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of, I, I clearly didn't prepare. Like so BNF type. So you're saying like you describe the BNF yeah, grammar as it. a railroad diagram. Yeah, that's it. There it is. Oh, okay. See, I, didn't, I didn't know that had a another name because I just called them grammars or context-free grammar. Okay, that's interesting. And you can clearly see how much I prepped <laughs> for this because I would have actually, I'm sure there's a couple of them out there. But anyway, so this is kind of a fun topic. Um, okay. Oh, I have the other article I was looking for. Uh, AWS, uh, Shane Miller. Uh, she's an Amazon Web Service Senior Engineering Manager. She's going to be taking the job of the newly created Rust Foundation's first chairperson, speaking of Rust again. Rust again. So um, now they're actually going to have a chairperson for the Rust Foundation, and that chairperson uh, is someone who's working on the Rust platform team for AWS. So it's not like she doesn't work with highly scalable platforms, right? I mean, you know, you, you, uh, the stuff that runs AWS runs the world. So uh, it'll be interesting to get her input and see where she takes that foundation for Rust going forward. I know I wanted to mention that earlier, but I missed that. Sorry. Right. Yep. And this is all because, you know, Mozilla backed off of supporting Rust. So then a couple of companies, uh, big companies, started funding the Rust Foundation. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and now they have a chairperson. So that'll be interesting to see. Okay. Um, Here's another fun one, using console log like a pro. I'll bet most of you, and I would put myself in this category for most of my JavaScript career, just did console.log, maybe with the back ticks and, you know, uh, string substitutions, uh, but not much else than console.log itself. But it turns out that it's a nice little API. It's improved over the years. Um, you know, certainly you can use different levels of logging. It will color them differently. You can filter them differently. So this is a nice little tutorial on that. Um, you know, you get your, your icons and your filters and you can filter the output based on the level of, of, of notice, which is interesting. Um, you can also style. So, uh, you know, this is a little silly, but you can actually, you can put styling embedded in console.log, um, you know, using CSS. Now I assume some of this stuff is going to be very specifically Chrome, right? I'm assuming that some of this might not work on others, but so I'd have to look at that. Um, you know, you have the string substitutions thing. Uh, so percent S or percent I for integer or O for object. So you can do that. I like the back tick and dollar curly brace myself. It's simpler and quicker, but then it implicitly formats it. And so maybe this way you can be a little more specific about how you want the format to be. Um, did you know there was a console assert? I did not know about console. Assert. I didn't either. No. <laughs> so, you know, you can actually put a console assert in your code and then it will actually show the assertion fail when it fails. Uh, there's a clear, if you want to, as you're like tracing down a problem, you want to clear the screen uh, in the console, you can do that. Um, you can do console.count and it will print out the number of times it hit that line, which is also useful for like tracking loops and things like that, whether it even ran a loop. Um, I've liked console for .dir, and this is in, in uh, other browsers. Like you want to print out the contents of an object or an array. Console.dir does that, and it puts the little uh, markers in so you can expand it later, Okay, which is kind of nice. Uh, grouping. So look at this. You can actually group console messages together. Who knew? Oh, wow. Yeah. So you, you can get pretty sophisticated. Question is, do you really have a lot of time and have a lot of need to do this? But for certain things you're doing where you're really kind of trying to find timings of things or grouping things together, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Um, console.memory. 
you can print out how much memory is left. It's a property, not a function. So right. it gives you the memory object. Majority of your development is in browser-based JavaScript. Then it's really useful. And I would probably say, yeah, you should be using these things um, just like you would if you're a backend developer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How about console.table? That's pretty cool, right? So you got uh, a table of uh, objects and it'll take the uh, index of them and the property names and make a table out of it. Oh, whoa, wait, 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 say that, oh, nice. See that, so you have, you have an object that has properties and when you do a console table of an array of those, it'll introspect the property names, give them headings and put a table together. That's actually, that's actually pretty cool. Like, you know, here it's, it's really useful to me. Like if you're just benchmarking a couple approaches for something and you want to see which one's quicker, it's nice to see it as a table format. So you can actually read it quickly without digging through a bunch of text. Yeah. Um, you know, there's also console.time and time end. So you can say, I want to mark when this time starts. Uh, then you can say log a particular point. Um, time log, of course, documented time log and time. It looks like it's like stopwatch kind of stuff. And then time end, it will count the actual number of milliseconds. We need a console UX developer. <laughs> <laughs> and also console.trace. Where did this happen? Boom, there's your stack trace. Right, so interesting. So that's a nice little uh, deal there. Again, we'll have the link to that and link to all these things uh, in our show notes, uh, which will be on the page. But I have one more article. And this is, my, this is more of a, another Rails. Uh, <laughs> you know, Ruby on Rails, uh, really took off in the aughts um, because it was a really good productive system for getting stuff done. Um, and it became kind of a victim of its own success because things were so fast to develop on Rails that people would abandon older versions of projects and things like that. So you would go to upgrade your Rails project and half the stuff would be broken. Um, that was kind of the growing pains that it went through. I'm not sure where it is now. I know people are still developing on it. But I saw this blog and I started, like, my skin started to itch because I'm like, uh-oh, Rails of React. Um, and so if you think of Rails as being a rapid prototyping system, rapid development system that lets you, you know, um, have a database object relational mapper, uh, have some sort of like authentication and management, some sort of build automation to make things quicker. The problem we run into with single page apps against backends is we kind of have to build things on both sides in different platforms, right? So you have to build all your models and objects and your or object relational mapping and abstractions on the back end so you can send RESTful information back and forth or maybe GraphQL information back and forth, depending. But then on the front end, you have to take those abstractions and ingest them and work with them and send the right shape of abstraction back out. So you've got this bifurcation of the code across this, this chasm of the internet through, you know, it might be Node in the back end or it might be Java in the back end, which makes it even more challenging. So it would be interesting to see somebody come up with a good overall framework end-to-end -end that lets you be somewhat rapid application development around a single page app. It always feels like we're reinventing a lot of things for every platform every time, uh, and it's a lot of work. So this is where Zach Shepard has come from in this, this uh, uh, post, is he's is saying there's a race on to be the rails of React. Um, you know, I didn't know about any of these, uh, and a lot of them were putting messages out to the console saying, don't use this in production because people are hacking around and learning as they're building it. But there are tools like, for example, Blitz.js. Um, it uses Next.js on the back end, which is a kind of a, a React server rendered React, um, you know, server side rendering engine uh, to then host 
React components in the browser once they're downloaded. Um, but it has, for example, with this one, it's got um, like email integration. Uh, it's got a CLI with a bunch of dev tools and a code generator. Um, but uh, their code wraps all the underlying dependencies. So you're locking yourself into Blitz, right? And so all these tools, you're going to look to some degree of lock-in because you're dealing with an abstraction on top of a set of lower level abstractions. And those abstractions you're building are going to be very specifically purpose-driven for that you know, rails type, uh, thing. Um, you know, and so someone will absolutely suffer from lack of documentation. Um, and you know, it's beta for example. So that's one of them. He looks at bedrock as another one. Um, and this one, I always get concerned about these private for-profit getting started kit by Max Stoiber. So that tells me it's one developer building a thing, but then again, you know, David Hanemeyer Hansen built Rails with his team uh, for his product, and it ended up becoming open sourced in the end, but they didn't start as for profit private. So that would be one that would kind of make me pull back a little bit personally. But who knows? It could be really interesting to work with. Um, it's about $400 a seat. So, you know, that's another group that's trying to take that on. Redwood JS, um, that one, uh, this person actually was from Tom Preston Warner, who's a co-founder of GitHub and created Gravatar and Jekyll. So he's got some, some uh, background in doing open source projects, certainly. And this one I thought was interesting because it uses Storybook to organize the React components. Uh, and it uses Apollo and GraphQL on the back end. So that one might be interesting to check out just to kind of keep an eye on and see where that heads. Um, you know, because then you've got the ability to use, you know, some... Uh, decent tools, especially using um, Storybook to kind of preview your components and check them out. Um, but again, this one's also very early too. Um, it also says Redwood is either wrapped its dependencies so strongly they are hard to see, or the team has completely re-implemented core features themselves. It means you're tightly locked into their framework once you start building. Um, it's deeply opinionated. That sounds like Rails about how you should do things like, so in their cases, organize and work on your application. Uh, and it's pre 1.0, so it's still too early to pay attention to. Uh, maybe just keep your eye on. And then application, the one difference about that one is it generates code, and the code doesn't rely on an application, so to speak. It just generates code. Um, and so it, it, it really is something where you don't have to then use their libraries or anything. And they're using, I don't know if you meant Nest.js or Next.js, but Prisma, which is a, a, a object abstraction layer for the back end of a GraphQL server, uh, Apollo server express for the web services and passport, which I think is a security module. Um, and it's written in TypeScript and it's also containerized with Docker. So of the four, I kind of am interested in this one because it seems to be less lock-in in the end. It might get you started on a prototype of something perhaps to get looking at something that's interactive. But again, everything's early. Um, and it says right here on the screen, it says application application is currently in alpha and it should not be used in production. You will get errors using the console and the generated applications have very little optimization. Um, whoops. And then uh, it says it's pretty slow. Getting your sandbox environment set up for development takes so long. I finished this blog post before it's uh, finished setting up my environment. Yeah. So what do we learn from this? Do you feel each of these is scratching an itch or hitting a pain point that or a gap that exists in, in this space, or are there things out there that do these well and these are maybe not necessary, or they're nice research exploration efforts, but I don't know, what are your thoughts? I feel that they're trying to scratch an itch. I think that this is a real problem. 
okay. know, the real problem to me is is the bifurcation of the stack of data shapes and validation and 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 you know passing things back and forth and writing all that code to do the passing back and forth just to get stuff done. Um, especially if you're going to do like Spring Boot in the back end and TypeScript on the front end. Now you got two totally different languages. So, you know, you'd be looking for things to make that easier. Like maybe a GraphQL might make it easier because you could generate bindings for both sides from the schema, perhaps. Just saying maybe because I know GraphQL polarizes people. You know, some people are like, yes, I, I get document-based development or no, I don't want another language on top of my two other languages to work with. So I think that there's definitely a need for that. Um, the, the allure of rails as, uh, one guy we used to work with said is I love rails because it lets me make the same mistakes I would make in six hours in five minutes. Right. So I'm making the same bugs and fixing them a lot quicker, but I still make the same bugs as I'm learning, as I'm developing about what I'm trying to do. So I think that, um, it's, it's, it would be good to have a more productive and quick way of building both the front and back end side together somehow whether it's rails like or not, do I really want an ORM? I don't know if I do, but what I do want is the ability to, to, to say, all right, I've got this set of schemas, uh, so to speak, or, you know, types that I'm going to pass this API shape that I'm going to pass something scaffold that for me enough that I can get my front end built and write my back end without a lot of pain. And I think right now that's realistically, that's a GraphQL because you can make GraphQL schemas. You can generate, the stubs on the one side and the skeleton, so to speak, on the other side, to use a really old term, and code to them in some way on some platforms. But you have to roll up your sleeves and do a lot of work yourself, even with that. So I think there is definitely, there's so there's two ways of looking at it, right? One way is all this SBA stuff is way too complicated. Let's just do server-side development again, <laughs> which some people have gone back and said, you know what? This app doesn't need to be a single-page app. This app can just be HTML-driven, and it's good enough. Or, yeah, we really need a, a more rapid way of building a full stack that is a little more integrated. So I think it absolutely is something we could use in that industry. I just don't know how you do that in, because there's so many different lefts and rights to pick, you know. So someone's making a choice on each of these platforms and trying it. It's definitely worth paying attention to. I'd be afraid of using it at first because I think I'd be stuck with something that not many people use. So it'd be like, Rails 1.0, but maybe in two or three or four years, this might be something that someone might use that might give you a lot of productivity. And that like, okay, there's enough people using these things in various ways and seeing common patterns now and people are trying to build some frameworks around these common patterns. So maybe like you're saying, a couple years from now, it'll be mature enough where there'll be a clear winner maybe. Or you know what? Prototyping. Like if, if one of these can get me a basic prototype of something I really want to build for, for real, but I can show up and say, here's what we're thinking. And yes, this is just a clickable prototype with some logic in it, but it gets the ball rolling in conversations and you throw it away. That's okay too. That could be useful for getting through and learning what your real requirements are for something. But you know, the problem with all those always is, oh, you already built it. So this next phase should be really short, right? <laughs> you know? That was throwaway. Yeah, this is throwaway. Remember he said throwaway. Um, you know, so anyway, I know it's a little bit of a rant and a little bit of a, I'm skeptical, but uh, I think it could be really cool, at least for prototyping and maybe for certain cases, it could be really nice long-term. All right. I think that about does it. I thought we were going to be short today, but here we are 45 minutes. It's like, no matter what we pick, we always end up about 1245. <laughs> 
So uh, if you want to communicate with us, please hit us up on Twitter. We are at, at TechCast. Uh, so tweet us there. We'd love to hear from you. You can put comments in the show on YouTube, youtube.com slash Chariot Solutions. Uh, or if you go to chariotsolutions.com slash TechCast, you'll see our podcast right there. And we will keep track of uh, the video there as well. So those are a couple of ways to get to us. But definitely, you know, make sure you hit the, the, the like button if you enjoy this. And make sure you subscribe to see new issues and new content from Chariot Solutions. And for that, uh, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Tijan Fadiyat. You guys have a great week. Take care.